From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Welcome to winter. Donald Jeffries is standing by as we commemorate the anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination. Don is the author of Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. Before that, let me introduce the band on the Gibson Flying Guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson, uh, here again tonight on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials, and on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and theremin, Albert Vinzel, my story producer. Also in studio tonight, our fine young intern, Ryan White. Let's say hello to Ryan. Ryan is... Uh, How's that go. going there? Hey, Ryan. How are you? Welcome aboard. Well, thank you. Welcome. R- Ryan was one of my uh, former broadcast students at Durham College and a, a fine young gentleman, and we're uh, very happy to have him aboard as uh, an intern here on the program. Before we get Don Jeffries in here, Albert, my occasional remote viewer friend, what's in the box? Um... We've got a bunch of guesses coming in on Twitter. And I don't want. Yeah, we'll get to the Twitter guesses in a minute. But I want you to really focus, Albert, because you've had a rough couple of weeks, and I know what's happening. You're off your game because you're guessing. You're not yeah. following the remote viewing protocols. That's. But part one is guessing is the AOL. So, so my guess is spoon or like something metallic, and that's uh, under notifications. We got. Bellatrix, he's guessing. No, 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 no. I want to know what you think. Hang on. Never mind the the Twitter. Just tell me what you think. You're you're saying it's a spoon. I I I mean I'm I could be way off because there's like the desire to know and the ability to focus. But once you're in that zone and you hear that still small voice, then you'll be a hundred percent right. And what is the still small voice telling you? (laughs) I I haven't got there. You've got to be in that relaxed state, and that's that's the that's the trick is to get to that zone. All right. Well, you, I'll give you a little more time, but what we'll do is at the bottom of the hour, uh, if people want to uh, guess, or not guess, I don't want you to guess. I want you to utilize your remote viewing skills, and uh, you can send us a tweet. Use the hashtag, what's in the box, and if you're close, we'll announce it at the uh, near the bottom of the hour, just after the bottom of the hour. But And I've got some uh, some books from my private library I've cobbled together, uh, but you need to be within driving distance of the radio station to pick those up because we're not going to mail those out. That would be cost prohibitive, as the kids like to say. Uh, so what's in the box? Use the hashtag what's in the box. And uh, Albert, try listening to that small, quiet voice, and we'll check in with you later. Uh, oh, oh, we should also point out on the app, if you haven't already downloaded the free app for The Conspiracy Show, uh, please do so. And there's a new a feature on the app that uh, Sharon Forster, our wonderful app developer, has has uh, put on there. And it's a, a remote viewing experiment that you can do on your own. It has nothing to do with what's in the box, uh, so check that out. And again, Conspiracy Show app is a free download from uh, Google Play and uh, the Apple Store. In the uh, the first edition of his book, Hidden History, uh, Don Jeffries writes, I can remember when believing in conspiracies wasn't cool. Now, in the second decade of the 21st century, more people are starting to sense that things may not be as they appear. Uh, Or to put it another way, after the WikiLeaks revelations uh, of the last several months, I think we can all say 2016 
is the year you owe all of your paranoid friends a beer. Um, here we are, 53 years and counting since the assassination of JFK, and the alternative media is dominating over traditional media outlets like CNN, MSNBC, even the New York Times, etc. And conspiracies are becoming increasingly mainstream. Don Jeffries has been researching the JFK assassination since the mid-1970s when he was a student volunteer with Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry. He is the author of the 2007 novel, The Unreals. He recently published the third edition of Hidden History with a new foreword by Roger Stone, longtime friend of President-elect Donald Trump and an advisor to the successful Trump campaign. Don Jeffries, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Fine, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Did I get that right? It's the third edition that just came out, right? Uh, well, yeah, the first one sold out. They had a second printing, so yeah, technically, I guess it is. The right. I've got the. I have the um, the the first edition, um, not the, uh, the 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 new one with the Roger Stone forward. However, I mentioned Roger Stone, uh, who wrote the forward to uh, the third edition. Obviously, he's an admirer of your work, and he knows the the soon to be president very well. He's had many conversations with him over the uh, the years. I'm wondering whether Roger has communicated to this to you or whether you happen to know whether Hidden History might be the kind of book that Trump would be interested in. Because I think you mentioned to me before, he is interested in conspiracies. Oh, I hope so. I don't have nothing. He hasn't contacted me, has it? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to think maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe Roger, I don't know if Roger ever got around to mentioning it to him or how much he actually talks to him now. Roger is very busy. I haven't talked to him for a while, but... Uh, yeah, I'd love to think that. Boy, it would, it would certainly help to have uh, Trump holding my book up on television. <laughs> but, 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 but do you, th- I mean, your sense, did Roger ever say whether Trump is, maybe I heard that from another quarter, that, that Trump is actually, has talked to Roger about conspiracies. He's interested no, in this he stuff. Has. He, did, he did tell me that. He told me before that uh, you, would, you would love this guy because he's, he's only coming out with a very little bit of what he actually believes. And then he knows all this stuff and he's just... <clears throat> You know, hints of it come out and then things that he says. So that's what Roger Brown says. So, um, boy, that would be amazing. Maybe we get the first uh, genuine conspiracy theorist in the White House. Do you think, for example, Trump would be a guy that would consider reopening the 9-11 investigation? Well, there have been hints of that, too. You know, there's a quote out there. I've never been able to really completely verify it, but if Trump actually said it where he talked about Building 7, which is huge. And if you're mm-hmm. talking about Building 7, you're, you understand how... Uh, implausible the official scenario is and uh he did say something about there and there have been rumors about that now whether that would actually happen boy that would be uh the, the most controversial thing are that he's uh, ever said or done right um jfk i i see i think we're on the same page uh, on this that that, that uh, the jfk assassination is kind of a, a coup d'etat or was it kind of a coup d'etat taking over the executive branch the national security state, the military-industrial complex. Do you think, let me just stay with this Trump uh, vein of, of questioning for, for a moment yet, do you think Trump's victory, when you look at all of the powerful forces that lined up uh, in opposition to him, the political establishment of both parties, the corporate-controlled mainstream media, do you think Trump's victory is a first step in recapturing the executive branch, the presidency? Well, it could be. Uh, and I'm, I'm withholding judgment. I'm obviously uh, willing because I supported Trump uh, because of some of his really bold statements and the 
the real hatred that he elicited from every corner of the establishment. I said many times that that's the greatest thing about Trump is the fact that he has, certainly has the right kind of enemies. But uh, so far, the appointments he's made, he's made or rumors of his appointments have been uh, a little troubling to me. I'm not real happy with what I've heard so far about that. So I hope we start to see some real fresh uh, faces in there, not the old uh, establishment people, because he, if he's going to drain the swamp, it, it's hard to have people like Mitt Romney in there. And uh, John Bolton has been mentioned, just to really be an awful pick. So hopefully they, they don't actually get in there, but... <clears throat> of course, I'm willing to give Trump a, a chance, but I, I said at the outset that, you know, he, this is almost too good to be true that we could have somebody in there that really yeah, some of the things Trump has said. So um, we'll see what happens, but uh, the cabinet will be telling, and uh, I, I would want to see at least some outside face. Certainly love to see uh, a Ron Paul or a Pat Buchanan in there, but uh, I haven't been any rumors of uh, them being nominated for anything. Donald Jeffries, author of A Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. Uh, last week uh, on the program, we were uh, also talking JFK. I interviewed Peter Janney, and um, we talked about Mary Pinchot Meyer, one of JFK's mistresses. And uh, I don't know, are, are you, do, you, do you know Peter? Have you talked with Peter? I don't know him. I have I read Mary's Mosaic. Uh, you know, that was a very interesting book. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to pursue that a little bit with you. Uh, um, Janney's father was uh, a CIA was in the CIA, and uh, during his research, he actually, you know, got the shock of his life as he discovers his own father was likely involved in Meyer's death. And I'm just wondering about that journal. You know, whenever there's sort of a, a high-profile murder, uh, whether it was Marilyn Monroe and then we have Mary Pinchot Meyer, there's always this journal that goes disappearing. Uh, and obviously it would appear that uh, she knew something uh, about JFK's death, who was responsible, and that's why she was killed. What are your thoughts uh, uh, about what may have been in that, in that journal? Well, I think you said it yourself, the fact that it was destroyed, and apparently it was James G. Sangleton, and yes, Jesus was his middle name, one of the most uh, curious figures ever to grace the CIA, who supposedly uh, went to her house and, and I think burned it in the fireplace. Um, you know, when that kind of stuff happens and the CIA is involved, and actually her uh, husband was uh, Gord Meyer, mm-hmm. if you read Hidden History, he's at the back of a lot of these uh, projects for... Uh, uh, fomenting uh, false opposition on the left, especially uh, you know fake magazines, fake dissent. I, I believe he worked uh, with Gloria Steinem, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yeah, certainly the way, the way she died. I mean, again, when you look at all the unnatural deaths that are associated with these, uh, to get murdered like that, and then coming from the background she did. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in, when you're running in those type of high circles. You shouldn't be prone to just random violence that would happen if you live in a really uh, poverty-stricken area. So when that happens, and given her background and her connections, regardless of uh, how real any uh, you know affair with JFK was or how um, involved she was with him uh, as far as policy or trying to influence him or anything, I think her death alone and the fact that apparently her journal was was destroyed shows that she was um, murdered by some powerful forces. I don't, I don't for a second think it was a random act of violence that they blamed on the person they blamed it on. Yeah, Ray Crump Jr. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, again, it's interesting, the um, the patterns here when they choose a, a, a patsy, uh, when when they they nabbed, before they even nabbed Oswald in, in the theater in Dallas, and I don't, you can tell me whether you think this story is true, the idea that, that Fletcher Prouty, 
who of course was uh, Mr. X in Oliver Stone's JFK, Donald Sutherland. Uh, Fletcher Prouty's off, off on this wild goose chase um, in in uh, New Zealand, and he picks up a newspaper and he's reading all about Oswald's background and how he's uh, been charged with the president's murder. He immediately calls Washington, and at that moment, they hadn't even nabbed Oswald in the theater yet. Is that true, do you think, that story? Well, there's been some dispute, uh, some dispute about it, but certainly if it is true, it uh, it says a lot about the powers of the people that uh, assassinated JFK. And we, we do, there's enough stuff out there that we know is true. For instance, we do know that McGeorge Bundy, who people always ask me for names, and he was a national security advisor at JFK, I think it can be reasonably inferred that he had uh, foreknowledge of the assassination simply because he was in the White House Situation Room at the time, and he assured all of JFK's cabinet members who were in the air flying uh, back from Hawaii for a conference, he assured them that there was no conspiracy, and this is only a couple hours after the assassination when no investigation had been done at all. Uh, So there's no way he could possibly have known that sitting in the White House Situation Room. But he did that, and uh, I think that uh, he's a, a culpable, not, a, not to mention the fact that he's also the one that wrote National Security Action Memorandum 273, which was written actually before JFK was assassinated. They Let me just jump in here, Donald. Forgive the intrusion. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to that uh, memorandum. George McBundy, the JFK assassination, and much more. Hidden history, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Donald Jeffries is with us. The book, Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, with a forward by Roger Stone. We were talking about um, McGeorge Bundy, uh, who was National Security Advisor to both Kennedy and uh, LBJ. And you mentioned... A uh, rather strange phone call he made to Kennedy's staff who were flying back uh, from from Hawaii. It's interesting. They were all sort of madly off in all directions. Prouty was sent uh, to New Zealand. Um, other staff sent to Hawaii. So on their way back, McGeorge Bundy calls them and, and says what, uh, Donald? He reassures them that there was no conspiracy. And that's exactly what he said. And, again, this is just impossible. It would be impossible for him to have known that even if he was in Dallas, which he wasn't. He was far away in Washington, D.C., in the White House Situation Room. He did that. I think that makes him culpable, at least of having foreknowledge, especially in conjunction with knowing he's the person who wrote National Security Action Memorandum 273, which was actually the first draft was written by him before the assassination. Now, he had to have known that John F. Kennedy would never have signed it because it totally contradicted National Security Action Memorandum 263, which JFK had just put out, and it delineated his withdrawal policy from Vietnam. 273, which Johnson signed as quickly as he possibly could, contradicted Kennedy's plans. And, of course, uh, we know what happened after that. The escalation began and the the rest of the 1960s happened. So those two uh, events, I believe, the phone call and the fact that he... I don't believe an innocent uh, staffer would possibly have written something which he had to have known if JFK saw it, would just said, you know, what are you doing? That completely contradicts everything that we want to do in Vietnam. So uh, I think he he did that because he must have known that JFK wouldn't have been around to sign it. That sounds extraordinary to me that a a national security advisor would draft a draft, a memorandum. Isn't that only under the president's purview? 
Well, it, it is that, but it typically um, they would draft it, and then I guess the president would revise it, and of course the president has to approve it. But that's the important thing, is that he drafted this, and, and there was no need for it, because, as I said, it completely contradicted the very recent, I believe it had only been a month before, that uh, National NSAM uh, 263 came out. Of course, Oliver Stone uh, made quite a bit of that, and, and with good cause, because that was, I, I believe, the most important indication of... Uh, the change that happened with JFK's death. You know, a lot of these, especially the liberals, the Noam Chomsky's of the world, like to portray it as uh, Kennedy would not have done anything different, nothing changed with his death, when in fact we had the evidence of those National Security Action Memorandums very clearly showing what a huge change happened as a result of the change of the administration. There there are still some important documents relating to the assassination yet to be released, I believe, Members of the House Select Committee of, on Assassinations, which was established in, I think, 1976. And, yeah. and I believe some of the members of that committee saw these documents. I think some of the members of the Church Committee also saw these documents that are to be, that are sealed until 2029. Um, what do you, I mean, what, what is the scuttlebutt on what those, those, I mean, is it significant information in those, uh, those documents? Could this blow the lid off the assassination in 2029? I, I doubt very seriously there's any kind of smoking gun there. I, I've always uh, said that I, I, I don't think that uh, you're going to find anything in there where the assassination plot is detailed and people are signing their names to it. I mean, you, you may, I'm, su- I'm sure there's some interesting information in there. Certainly there's no reason for anything to be withheld, and of course that was one of the very strong indications that uh, there was not a lone nut unconnected anything for the fact that anything would be classified in the grounds of national security if Lee Harvey Oswald was simply a minimum wage earning a loser who uh, wanted to impress his wife, uh, then what would possibly uh, be withheld on that in the grounds of national security? But we see this all the time. I mean, you still have information, I believe, that uh, Scotland Yard is withholding about Jack the Ripper. You know, <laughs> that was talking about 1888. So right, right. There, there, there's just a strong impulse on the part of those in authority to withhold and suppress. And, and regardless of what's actually in that information, it clearly looks like they're suppressing something for sinister purposes. You mentioned the um, executive memorandum 263, which was uh, one of the, the big losers, I think, in that would have been, uh, had it not been reversed, would have been a, a company like Bell Helicopter. Obviously, yeah. you know, they made their bones with the war in Vietnam. Absolutely. And, and then we have people associated with Bell Helicopter that were also associated with Lee Harvey Oswald, and that would be... The pains. Right. Talk to me about the the connections between uh, the connection between the pains, Oswald, and Bell Helicopter. Well, the the pains. What's really amazing all the deaths that have happened, and of course it was fifty three years ago. So at this point, you would expect a good number of deaths to be uh, have occurred that where people were associated with the Kennedy assassination. But the pains, both Ruth and Michael Payne, are still alive. Amazingly enough, so if there was an honest investigation conducted, you could still get. I believe the pains were involved in. Uh, what I would call setting Lee Harvey Oswald up as, as the patsy on the ground level. Uh, I believe, as Jim Garrison did, that Lee Harvey Oswald was an, a low-cover, undercover agent uh, with somebody, the FBI, CIA, Naval Intelligence, someone. And he was told at the time of the assassination, or right before that, that he was on assignment to infiltrate what he was told was a brewing plot to potentially assassinate President Kennedy. So I think he was actually trying to stop that, and I believe that's why he interacted with uh, the Paines, who I believe were just kind of put in the pen. And as you mentioned, they had uh, connections not only to the Bell helicopter, but uh, Ruth Payne, and, and especially had connections to the CIA, 
uh, Michael Payne. Clearly, there's even a you know six degrees of separation thing where Alan Dulles is, uh, was um, one of his mistresses was the best friend of I believe Michael Payne's mother. So it's just you know these connections are incredible when you examine them. But they they weren't just uh, some random couple you know in, in in Texas that happened to intermingle. Just as George DeMoran showed, it was even a more interesting character who. Uh, Actually, had dated Lee Harvey, uh, had dated um, Jacqueline Kennedy's Onassis's mother as a youngster. And that's the circles he ran in, and he was uh, with the white Russian community, uh, really a virulent anti-communist. And yet, somehow, and I believe he was probably forty years older or more than uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, something like that. Yet somehow, he becomes the best friend of this uh, Marxist, twenty-two-year-old, uh, twenty-four-year-old that uh, had just, you know, renounced his citizenship and came back and was, you know, reading The Daily Worker and, and was a minimum wage earner. It just, that, that just doesn't pass the smell test. It just, it, on so many levels, the age factor, the philosophical factor, and the economic factor, you're just not going to have somebody who had, you know, had the point where he was raised in circles where he could be dating, uh, you know, a Bouvier as a uh, young man would possibly be the point where he would want to socialize and intermingle with someone like Lee Harvey Oswald. Don Jeffries is with us. Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. Um, just getting back to the Paines for a moment, was it, wasn't it Ruth Payne who, who convinced Marina Oswald to move out, uh, sort of isolating Lee Harvey Oswald? Yeah, well, they had a very curious uh, living arrangement where Lee Harvey Oswald, who we're told had no money, was was making minimum wage, somehow uh, put out the extra money to rent a room. You know, he lived in a rooming house uh, that was near his work, and then on the weekends he would ride home with Buell Wesley Fraser, and that's, of course, the guy that rode him to work that day, the fateful day. But uh, in the meantime, Lee, uh, Marina and uh, first the one child, she was pregnant with her second, and then she had the second baby girl, were living with uh, Ruth Payne, who was estranged from Michael Payne, but they were still good friends. In other words, just a weird relationship between the Paynes to begin with. They were living apart, but, uh, and there's some indication, if you look at some of the letters, I remember Michael Eddowes, who wrote the Oswald file way back when, uh, one of his uh, letters he produced, it, it certainly looks like a love letter from Ruth to Marina, where she seems to be like in love with her, have some kind of a, uh, infatuation with her. But uh, we're told on the surface that uh, they were living there, that Ruth uh, was uh, letting Marina live there, and she helped with the, her own kid, with the Payne children, and she would also teach Ruth uh, Russian. That was supposedly the reason. But it just, it just seemed like a strange relationship for the husband to be living, who had made no money, who had, had a rooming house, and why he couldn't have lived there, too, I don't know. He certainly should have been able to ride to work every day with uh, Frazier, who lived in the neighborhood. And, of course, Ruth Payne also is the one who, you know, if, you're, if you're speculating that she was kind of uh, maneuvering him around at the ground level, she's the one that got him the job at the Texas School Book Depository. And um, so her, her fingerprints are all around. If you read my book, I have lots of stuff in there about her, where she had marked her calendar in an odd way that indicated that... Uh, she knew when Oswald had supposedly ordered the rifle, which, of course, really is like so much of this evidence. If you look behind it, almost all the incriminating evidence against Oswald, especially of a personal nature that he beat his wife and so forth, it all comes from uh, the testimony of Ruth Payne or Marina's ever-changing testimony. So she's somebody who I think in, in an honest investigation, she would have really been grilled about uh, just the strange relationship them, her background. But, of course, the authorities were... We're not going to go there. And she's uh, somebody that uh, was uh, apparently she's very lawsuit friendly. So I have to be careful what I say here. 
because uh, when Oliver Stone made his movie, she was, I believe, the only person where they had to, he had to invent a fictitious name for it. I think she threatened to sue him if she even portrayed her as, you know, as the person in history who she was. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, Hidden History has been thoroughly lawyered, though, hasn't not? I hope so. I haven't heard anything. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's your publisher's job, right? I mean, I, I you know, I don't accuse. I, I mean, I'm sitting there with this. Is when I say that, it's just speculation that everybody's had that. Sure. You know, she was, she was running. We don't. I mean, you know, maybe she was just a Quaker that was connected to that, and then later the Sandinistas and. You know, all all this. Uh, maybe she was just a peace activist, but sure, I, sure. I think her connections are curious, and the fact that she, uh, you know, was intermingled with Lee Harvey Oswald should, uh, I think, should warrant some scrutiny. The, the the famous picture of Oswald holding up the murder weapon, and at the same time, the uh, you know, the communist uh, <laughs> literature, the pamphlets, and so right. forth, the newspaper, the Workers' Party newspaper, that right. was taken in Ruth Payne's backyard, wasn't it? Yeah, well, well, it was. It was uh, no, it was actually taken at the. Um, oh, it was. A, it was. A, it was another. I, I don't think. No, it wasn't her backyard. But it was. Uh, again, that's uh, something that I, I go into quite a bit in the book as well because uh, Marina's story about that, and anyone who's looked at the photographs and see, I mean, he appears to be standing at an angle that's just impossible without falling over. And the overkill involved, where he had the rifle, the pistol supposedly used to kill Officer Tippett, and for good measure, the communist literature. What would be the purpose, other than trying to incriminate yourself with a future crime, or crimes in this case, what would be the point of that? I mean, did he know he was also going to shoot uh, you know, a police officer? I mean, it's just absurd. And again, Moreno's testimony in this is just, uh, I go into it somewhat in hidden history, and it's just really absurd. Uh, John Armstrong and his Harvey and Lee did a, a really good job of, of really in-depth going over Marina's testimony. And House Assassinations, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, found her so incredible that they actually wrote, I believe, a 32-page report that just detailed all her ever-changing uh, testimony. It's maddening. And she was the Warren Commission star witness. And, uh, you know, and of course, that wouldn't have been allowed. But she wouldn't have been allowed to testify her husband in a courtroom. Uh, one of the other, uh, one of the few witnesses that actually appeared uh, before uh, Earl Warren was Jack Ruby. And there's a very interesting exchange in your book uh, between Warren and Ruby, of course, uh, the the, uh, the gunman who killed Oswald during the infamous prison transfer a few days after the assassination of JFK. Uh, why? What was the purpose? I mean, it's very bizarre that that uh, conversation. Just give us sort of a synopsis of what what happened, what transpired in that conversation, that testimony. Well, yeah, I have, like I said, as you noted, uh, lots of excerpts from it, and it's, it's, it has to be read to be believed. I mean, it's it's like something out of a bad movie. He's basically, Ruby is basically begging Earl Warren and the commission, and it was also uh, one of the few witnesses that Gerald Ford appeared before the future president of the United States. The actual, most of the testimony of the Warren Commission was taken by staff members, like Arlen Specter, the future senator. Uh, but in this case, Warren, Earl Warren was there, Gerald Ford was there, I believe Alan Dulles was there. And he was basically begging. He said, gentlemen, well, my life is in danger here. I can't tell you the truth unless I get out of Dallas. And they're just, you know, kind of, the Earl Warren is saying, well, you know, there's a lot involved in that, Mr. Ruby. And he, it's, it's unbelievable to watch because Ruby is basically pleading for his safety to be taken out of Dallas. And here, here you have what, and at one point, uh, and I think I was one of the first writers to notice this, that uh, the world Warren alludes to the fact that basically they would never even have called him as a witness unless Ruby's sister hadn't contacted the Warren Commission and basically said, hey, don't you want to talk to this guy? So that's the kind of investigation that was conducted. It wasn't much of an investigation, obviously. And in this case, you had the guy who shot the alleged assassin in front of 70 police officers, national TV, and really uh, 
sparked the instant distrust that most of the American public had, because once he shot, I remember as a seven-year-old, just sitting there thinking, wow, he shot Oswald to shut him up. I mean, even a, a, a little kid can understand on a superficial level what was happening there, but uh, our government apparently couldn't, or they were uh, obviously complicit in some way, and they, they didn't want to find the answers. But yeah, it's, it's uh, reading Jack Ruby's testimony is... Uh, I mean, he was begging. He, he at one point he says, "Come on, you can get more out of me." I mean, he was he, he was he was asking him, "Come on, you know, hey, scratch a little more here." But uh, yeah, we think- will scratch a little more, Don. Just hold on. We'll uh, we'll take a time out. Hidden history and expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics, right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know. Behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a programming note next week on the program. Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Marden in the uh, the first hour. Noted UFO researcher. Uh, before we get back to our conversation with Don Jeffries, Hidden History, I just want to finish up our What's in the Box uh, segment and people are tweeting in uh, the hashtag what's in the box i think next week we'll we'll change up the uh, the hashtag what's in the box is kind of a, a very uh, popular uh, hashtag for other uh, items but um, right now we're using hashtag what's in the box uh, carlsberg at 84 is guessing cutlery uh, francisco vargas says a walnut um, aubrey bachelor says a dice uh, let's see Someone down here, oh, uh, Mr. Sinister <laughs> says cigars. Just because it's a humidor doesn't mean there are cigars in there. No, sorry. Uh, then we have uh, at Gage Preston, Red Rose. No. Uh, and then, now this is interesting, Bellatrix. At Bellatrix, uh, a shoe polish tin. That's pretty close. Uh, Albert, one final uh, guess. Did you, uh, you want to, do you want to try one more time before we? Something rectangular, like an old battery? Sorry, my friend. Let's open it up. All right. What's in the box? Look at that. It's a hockey puck. And I'm not talking Don Rickles here. Dating myself again with a Don Rickles reference. However, it is a hockey puck. So I thought Bellatrix was pretty close with a shoe polish tin. Uh, those of you who actually polish your shoes. Does anyone shoe polish anymore? Anyway, that's the right shape. Absolutely. Uh, we'll get a hold of Bellatrix. I don't know if she's in the Toronto area, but if she is... We'll uh, award her the uh, the book prize. Bellatrix, well done. Okay, let's get back to our conversation uh, with Don Jeffries. And we were talking uh, about the, the Jack Ruby testimony before the Warren Commission. And uh, he said that he, uh, you know, he had to get out of Dallas. His life was in, 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 uh, in jeopardy. Uh, he testified before Gerald Ford and um, uh, Justice Warren. He said something else about a meeting that took place in, the, in his club, the Carousel Club. Was Officer Tippett, the guy that was shot as he tried to apprehend uh, Rube, um, Oswald, was Tippett not in a meeting at the Carousel Club with someone? Well, there had been allegations that Mark Lane made a, um, a good deal about that. Uh, and, and some of those things, are, you know, they, they weren't proven because nothing was investigated. Because what would happen, even, even when people like Ruby would try to give them leads, I mean, Ruby did try to do that. He would try to steer them, hey, investigate this. And they just weren't interested in investigating. Hey, there's, there's loads of uh, evidence, and I go into it in hidden history, that Ruby and Oswald knew each other. And there is some evidence that uh, Tippett 
uh, knew them as well. And, and Ruby was so friendly with everyone in the Dallas uh, Police Department that it's uh, very unlikely that he had not at least run uh, run across Tippett, if not uh, you know being friendly with him, because he was very friendly. At the very least, he used to he was kind of a cop go getter. He would run and uh, bring sandwiches and coffee to the guys, and uh, you know, and, and then they would try to turn the other way. I guess if he uh, something untoward happened at a strip club, and he said, "All the officers free drinks and so forth." But uh, there was a lot there that they could have investigated, even on that level. And again, there was a early on, especially the uh, master ceremonies in his club, a comedian. Some of the strippers, they all talked about having seen Oswald in uh, the Carousel Club, but that got swept down the memory hole, like so much of, the, of the, what happens in all these narratives. The early stuff is forgotten, and all, everybody was mistaken, and so forth, and some of them die, some of them disappear, and uh, clearly, it is, if you study this, you just, you just see that there was absolutely no investigation conducted at all of Ruby or, or anyone else. Do young people still care? about the JFK assassination. It's that old Dennis Miller line when you say, where were you when JFK was shot? And they say, what, you mean the Oliver Stone movie? <laughs> do they, do they, do young people uh, that you speak to, or do they, do, they, do they care? Do they know about it? Well, I think they, um, they know enough about it to realize how significant it was. And I, really, I think they realize what a significant event it was. And in retrospect, of course, JFK uh, looks better and better compared to the presidents that came after him. So I think when they see him speak and they uh, see film clips of him and understand he had this movie star good looks, which always helps you know, your reputation, helps your likability factor, uh, I think they look and just listen to what he was saying. Certainly if they listen, to the, his secret society speech gets a lot of play in the conspiracy community. So I'm sure that lots of young people have heard that. And even though he was pretty much directly talking about communism, it just sounds so wonderful to hear a, a, a president talking about that stuff, and it's music to anybody anybody who's uh, chasing down these rabbit holes' ears, because it can apply to anything, and uh, people have used it to apply to other groups or the group that runs everything, if there is a group that runs everything. And uh, it's like nothing any other president said before. In that conjunction, a lot of them have also heard his American University peace speech. Right. June 1963, which is again, I, I believe one of the one of the greatest, not the greatest speech ever given, and may have been the nail in his coffin too. Yeah, I think I think that was the final nail, definitely. I think they, the plans went out right after that because you never hear anybody talk about that. I mean, you just, just you know, giving your your enemies uh, you know credit for being uh, mortal, just like you, and they breathe the same air we breathe, and they want they want the best future for their children. You just aren't used to hearing any politician uh, talk like that, and. Uh, just a wonderful speech retrospect to look at what we have where we come since then in the 50 year, three years, and just to imagine any politician really, uh, other than on the fringes. I mean, you know, my friend Cindy Sheehan, people like that. Certainly, you can you can uh, envision them making speeches like that, or even more radical. But any mainstream politician that has a chance to be elected president or even uh, senate to, to come up with a speech like that today is unthinkable because they just. That you wouldn't have that kind of spirit of, of thinking of being, you know, walking a mile on somebody else's moccasins and understanding that, hey, they're human beings too, and you know, do we really want this to happen? And it's uh, very important, especially now when there's so much anti-Russian fervor that's being whipped up, especially on the left, which is ironic. Yes. I've gotten in several arguments on uh, Facebook with with liberals about this. I said, you know, aren't you the same guys that? You know, wanted us to have detente with the Soviet Union and said we have to have peace with them, look the other way when they took over this country or that country and ruled with an iron hand, and somehow you're, 
you're expecting us to believe that Russia now is more dangerous than they were then. So it's it's really laughable to see that because like, that's one of the refreshing things really to come out of Trump is there's still that spirit I think there of wanting to get along with Russia. I think it's really important. I, I don't think any any sane person should want uh, World War III. Kennedy uh, and Khrushchev had developed some in- very interesting back-channel communications. I think in many respects, Khrushchev was sort of being perceived by the national security apparatus in his country the same way that Kennedy was by the Hawks uh, in his. Though the, the two of them were trying desperately to sort of uh, get together and work something out, but neither of the uh, their camps wanted that to happen. We'll take a uh, another time out, come back. And uh, one final segment with Don Jeffries, Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. I just want to let listeners know that Hidden History isn't uh, just about the JFK assassination. It's, um, it talks about uh, the Franklin uh, cover-up, the child sex scandals, uh, the death of William Colby, CIA uh, director, uh, the Bush body counts, part one and two. Uh, I want to jump ahead to, uh, we were talking about Kennedy, but I want to talk about the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. And uh, this is a little more, obviously, recent history, 1999. Um, many of us of a certain age will remember that very well, but some things that you point out in there that I had forgotten about uh, uh, John Jr.'s uh, death, and that was that it took 15 hours, uh, you know, by the time the Saratoga plane went into the drink before they actually initiated a search, 15 hours? That seems incomprehensible. Yeah, nothing about as, as a local reporter uh, told me when I emailed him. Uh, no, you know, did, nothing seemed right about that uh, event. Uh, we, we, you look at nine thirty nine p.m. phone call. I, I think that's the key to it. Uh, where I, I have unedited original VHS footage that another researcher kindly sent to me early on that he recorded live, and it's a good thing he did because later researchers got the same footage, and all these all references to that nine thirty nine p.m. phone call have been edited out. But if you have the real footage. It's constant. They talk about JFK was called uh, the flight tower at 9.39 p.m. Away and was said he, everything was fine and was awaiting landing instructions. That became important later on because 9.39 p.m. is the official time we're told that the plane went into a death spiral. So, uh, And what's more incredible is that uh, the one local station had an interview with the Coast Guard Petty Officer, Todd Bergen, who, uh, and it was just about that phone call. Now, the Coast Guard was not going to send someone to talk about uh, a phone call that never happened. And yet, uh, a few days, uh, you know, the next day or whatever, a couple days later into the coverage, after the plane, the remains were found, uh, the FAA came on and said, no, there was there was never any contact. So that, that 9.30 p.m. phone call went down the train. It was reported by UPI, very detailed, and again, they gave an interview on the subject. The inter- reporter that gave that interview, I emailed her three times. She never replied to me. And uh, I couldn't find the Todd Berg and the, the Coast Guard petty officer either. So, but I think that's the most important uh, piece of evidence we have because uh, obviously it was crucial to the official narrative because uh, it was almost impossible to believe that uh, the plane went into a death spiral at the exact moment that JFK Jr. was 
uh, contacting the, uh, the authorities and saying everything was fine. He was waiting landing instructions. And we also had the lie, the myth that the weather was bad that night. JFK was restless. I, I have all the evidence in the book. I talked to Edward Meyer, who wrote the official weather report for the FAA that night, is still angry all these years later about how uh, misrepresented the facts were about this case in the media. And he said, you know, that the weather was fine that night. It wasn't dangerous to fly. JFK Jr. was plenty qualified, and he wasn't reckless. So that's that's the story of you know from someone who wrote the official weather report that night. But instead, we had this dramatic, uh, the typical kind of Kennedy curse stories, and you know those Kennedys they're reckless, and he shouldn't have done this, and and uh, another one unfortunately dies unnaturally, and it just happened to be right when he was uh, ready to enter the world of politics. And of course, I found out from talking to people behind the scenes too that JFK Jr. had a a real quest to find out who killed his father. Unlike most of the Kennedys, he was very interested in his father's assassination, and in fact, he was about to launch an investigation in George Magazine, as Wayne Madsen told me, that uh, he was about to meet with JFK Jr., be hired specifically to investigate the assassination of his father. So there was a lot, there were a lot of reasons for the same kind of, the same forces that killed his father to want to silence him. The, uh, just sticking with the, um, you know the investigation or lack thereof of the uh, the, the plane crash. Uh, you write in the book how the the black box, which would have normally recorded, been a recording of all of the cockpit conversation, and that you know that call would have would have been recorded uh, in on the black box. What happened to the black box? Yeah, I believe they ever, they ever found it, and it's it's you know it, it's there's so many things about that. The, the switch, the, one of the switches was was put in, into an off position. I I talked to a pilot that talked you know that was familiar with flying those Saratoga planes, and he could have even if he had gotten in trouble, he could have glided the distance to land. I mean those planes are made that way, and and again the weather wasn't that bad that last night. If, and you, if you can see the way I wrote in the book, I kind of showed how the official narrative developed, where you had certain people coming out and. You know, kind of anonymous pilot saying, yeah, I tried to fly that night, that was crazy, you know, no one should have been out there. When in fact, if you look online, you can still see the radar reports that night, it wasn't bad. And as I said, the Edward Meyer, who wrote the official report, investigated just specifically the weather that night for the FAA, was incensed on the way this inaccurate way it was portrayed in the media. The weather wasn't bad, and JFK wasn't reckless. So there, there's a lot about that uh, then obviously it, it's like all these events. It wasn't investigated at all, and, and you're considered a crazy conspiracy theorist if you even ask these questions. You're also right here. The uh, the all planes have the uh, the emergency locator transmitter, the ELT, and that would send out a beacon signal uh, when a when a crash occurs. And yet it took them five days still to find the plane. Yeah, you think, <laughs> think they would have been able to follow that signal quicker? I mean, everything about it was. I mean, why was the military involved? JFK Jr. never served in the military. There was no reason for that. President Clinton kind of over overtook the entire investigation, and it was portrayed as because he loved the Kennedys so much, and he wanted to make sure this was, well, you know, he overreached. I don't believe he had the authorization to do that, and the military certainly didn't. And then the way the, the bodies were cremated so quickly, when uh, the Kennedys are Catholics, and I couldn't find any other record of any other Kennedys being cremated. I mean, I'm a Catholic, and most of us don't believe in cremation. He was cremated quickly. Their body, you know, the uh, the ashes dumped at sea. And uh, you know, if people read the chapter on it, you can find the Boston Globe. Even people like that were questioning, and they quoted people about how quickly the autopsies were done, how superficial they were, and how fast the process moved. It was really too quick to do any kind of uh, real investigation. The the entire thing was swept under the rug, and uh, it's you know just another considered just another. 
entry in the Kennedy curse, but I think it was a lot more than that. Do we know whether he was serious about making a run for the uh, the Senate uh, for New York State? Well, if he wasn't going to run that year, I mean, yeah, there, there's a whole school of thought, and I believe Roger Stone's one of those who thinks that, that believes that you know, this, he could be a member, another member of the Clinton body count because uh, he would have challenged Hillary Clinton for the New York Senate race. I, I don't know that specifically, but I do know, again, from talking to people behind the scenes, that he had... Uh, he was. He was. Thir- he's only 39 years old, so he was. He was still very young, and he was about to launch his. And I, I believe he probably, pretty much like the other Kennedys, especially uh, Robert Kennedy. He was. He, I think he was probably impatient. And they didn't want to be like Ted Kennedy and serve, you know, 40 years in the Senate or whatever. He wanted to go for the top because I think he wanted the answers. He wanted to try to expose who killed his brother. And, I mean, who killed his father and his uncle. And uh, so I believe he probably, he may have waited and just tried to run for the presidency. But I, I think he would have been a, an unbeatable candidate. I mean, he certainly would have had the female vote because of his looks. And he didn't have any baggage attacked, uh, attached to him like some of the other candidates. He'd led a clean life and um, had a beautiful wife. So I think he would have been a, a very, very hard candidate to beat. I think the uh, visions of Camelot would have been restored. And I think he would have been swept into whatever office he wanted to run for. And I'm trying to remember uh, who I was talking to who, who suggested that the name of his publication, George, uh, it, it wasn't about – he wasn't sort of referencing George Washington. He was pointing people in the direction he was announcing who was the – who was responsible for his father's murder. Was that you? Oh, no, I didn't say that. I, I, oh. That's probably a reference to people who believe uh, George Bush right, right. was involved. You know, I, I, I don't know that at all, but I, I do know that uh, – he had already, you know, he had had uh, a very uh, bold article about uh, the assassination of uh, Rabin in Israel, and he had also uh, had an interview with Oliver Stone. And I point out in the book, one, he went to one of the White House correspondence dinners uh, with his guest was Larry Flint. And Larry Flint was uh, more controversial than his, the being a publisher of Hustler magazine was the fact that he was a very vocal anti-war, you know, cr- critic of the Warren Commission. He'd offered a million dollars for the uh, to, to find the real murderers of John F. Kennedy. So uh, these are the people that, uh, you know, really behind the scenes, John F. Kennedy Jr. knew and it was associated with. So I don't think there's any question that he had kind of an old uh, Shakespearean kind of urge to find out who, uh, who uh, maybe to avenge his father's death. But, um, and as I've said before, I think all these deaths are connected, and that I don't think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Robert F. Kennedy would have ever been assassinated if John F. Kennedy hadn't, and uh, I don't think Ted Kennedy would have ever had Chappaquiddick, which was his political assassination, I believe. And I certainly don't think John F. Kennedy Jr. would have died in that plane crash if uh, if the Kennedys hadn't done something to offend the powers that be uh, way back when. Uh, just about out of time here, but do you think the the final chapter has been written on the uh, the Clinton dynasty? Uh, well, I hope so, but uh, who knows? I mean, Chelsea Clinton is said to be wanting to enter politics, so uh, I would never... But I, I think, again, I think the public is becoming awake, and that's why the Trump presidency is going to be so interesting, because people are going to be so crushed and disillusioned. I'll be the first one to go after him, too, if if he doesn't live up, and he just becomes another, you know, Repub- another Bush administration. And uh, I think people uh, saw so much of Hillary and they're, they're tired of even the people that voted for Hillary Clinton really wanted Bernie Sanders, most of them. Yes. They want something, uh, they want stronger voices. They don't want this inside. And so I think they would blanch at a Chelsea Clinton, much as they blanched at Jeb Bush when he tried to become the third Bush there. And I, uh, Jorge Bush, I think, is the next one in line that's, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to enter politics. So I think they don't. They don't want any more of these uh, dynasties. And, and again, if, if nothing changes under Trump, 
I think the next election is going to be even more interesting because you're, you're going to have some real outsiders that are pushing there. And, and with the growth of the Internet and the death of the dinosaur media and the fact that no one trusts them anymore, I think you're going to have uh, more and more voices, uh, you know, alternative voices that are pushing for real reform. And sooner or later, hopefully, we get real reform. I agree. Uh, as nasty as and as distasteful as this election was, that's the one force uh, for good that came out of it is that, that finally uh, the, uh, you know, the lie of un- an unbiased mainstream media has been laid to waste. Yeah. Donald, uh, always a pleasure. And again, uh, the third edition of Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics with a foreword by Roger Stone, available to book buyers now, Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble in the U.S., I'm guessing? Yes, yes. <clears throat> Donald, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Be well, my friend. All right, uh, the website for this program, your portal, really, is strangeplanet.ca. Explore. Check it out. There's a uh, radio section for this program, The Conspiracy Show. Click on the radio page. Register as a member. There's that blue member-only area uh, or blue member area button. Register. It's fast, easy, and free. That gains you access to all sorts of member-only uh, features like past show audio archives, the book club, etc., etc. And uh, please say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S Y because I love you R E double T. As always, follow the truth. <laughs>